Keep your Bible open to Mark chapter 9, just by way of preparation and vision. I want to give you a bit of a heads up where we're going. Uh, we will take Mark 9, 30 through 37 this morning. Uh, next week is Sanctity of Life Sunday, so we'll break from Mark and we'll look at the teaching of the Bible as it pertains to the preciousness and beauty of life. Uh, the following week, uh, which is the 29th, we'll look at 38 through the end of Mark chapter 9. That will take us to the first Sunday in February. Uh, as uh, many of you probably know or maybe have looked ahead in your Bible, Mark chapter 10, the first 10 verses, deals with a divorce. And this is an issue that uh, we have not really addressed too, in, too much in depth uh, from the Bible over the last couple of years. And so we're actually going to take a few weeks and just go to the three or four or five different passages in Scripture on this particular subject. And not with a, a cloud of, of interest or desire or perspective, but just what the Word says. We're going to let the Word speak to us and tell us what it has to say about the preeminence of marriage, the picture it is of the gospel, divorce, remarriage, and things of that nature. So we'll take a few weeks to do that. Somewhere around that time, February 12th, probably the second week after we dive into Mark 10, uh, we will have Eric Spore, a visitor, so we'll have a little break in there. But you can be praying about that and reading ahead and thinking about what the Lord might be teaching us through his word. How does one have closer fellowship with God? How does one have closer fellowship with God? Now you would notice I'm not asking the question, how does one have fellowship with God? I've inserted one additional word, closer. The only way we can have, the only way anyone has fellowship with God is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But then, how do you have closer fellowship with God? Now, certainly the world has given us, and even false teaching has given us many ways people seek to try to find closer fellowship with God. This morning, this passage here in Mark 9, 30-37 will answer for us that question on how we might find closer fellowship with God. In a, in a sentence, it looks like this. Imitating Christ in humble service is rewarded by closer fellowship with the Father. Imitating Christ in humble service is rewarded by closer fellowship with the Father. Let's look at our passage in verse 30, verse 32. I've highlighted that section by a question. Do you understand that Christ has risen? Do you understand that Christ has risen? Let's look at that. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not, meaning Christ, did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and when he's killed after three days he will rise. But they, the disciples, did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask. We've noted that the break between Mark 8 and Mark 9, Christ shifts his ministry from the people to the disciples and here he is teaching them. This is the second passion prediction. If you just maybe look over to the left of your Bible in chapter 8, verse 31, we see the first passion prediction. 
Verse 31, and he began to teach them, Mark 8, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this to them plainly. That's passion prediction number one. Here where we are in Mark 9, verse 30, is passion prediction number two. Now I want you to notice the similarity. In passion prediction number one, the disciples didn't get it. Verse 32 and verse 33. And Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Mark 9, verse 32, our passage this morning, they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Passion prediction number one, passion prediction number two, the disciples don't understand in both both cases. And the result of what Christ does is the same in both passages. He begins to teach them. We actually have a passion prediction number three that will come in a couple weeks in Mark chapter 10. So there is this prediction, there is this misunderstanding followed by the teaching of Christ. And notice the defining statement of this passion prediction. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. Adding a little inflection to it, you realize this isn't a, an optional thing. The work of Christ to be killed by the hands of men and to rise is not an option. It is, in fact, the gospel. We remember in Mark 1, verse 15, Christ's, the centrality of Christ's ministry is the teaching of the gospel. Repent and believe. And the question is, well, what do you believe in? You believe this, that the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. This has been predicted in the Old Testament. And the disciples may have even understood that prediction more clearly now. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Christ, the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. It's a definite statement because it's a definite plan. Acts 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts 4, 27 and 28, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. We are grateful that the Son of Man has died by the hands of men. But our hope is found in the fact that the hands of men did not win the day. He rose on the third day. The uh, pastors will tell you around the country that the forgotten theology is the resurrection. If you have someone explain the gospel to you, you'll hear about one sin. You'll probably hear about Christ as the savior of sin. You'll hear that Christ died on the cross for their sins. 
but you almost never hear, and he rose on the third day. I could see how the disciples might have been thinking, I get the dying part. You're a man, you're gonna die. But they don't get the risen Christ part. Do we understand that Christ has risen? Do you have faith this morning in the risen Christ? If we had time this morning, the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ are enough to fill a a month of sermons of Sundays. I could preach every day on the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but just for the sake of implication and application, let's just look at one. Turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. There is the hope of the resurrection. But what is, the, what is that one implication that may be helpful for us? And I would say that one of many would be suffering. Here in Mark 9, Christ is suffering. He is, his suffering is promised. The Son of God will suffer at the hands of men. 1 Peter 4 tells us that we will suffer as he suffers. So by implication of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how we deal with suffering is directly related to our understanding of the gospel. Meaning if we forget the theology of the resurrection, the ability to suffer well for the sake of Christ and in imitation of the suffering of Christ is greatly weakened. If our understanding of the gospel, the who and the what and the wonder of Christ is clear, is clear on the wondering of the suffering Messiah who is now risen for you out of love for you, then you draw strength in your suffering because it has an end in Christ. Christ's suffering has an end, the resurrected life, therefore our suffering has an end, the resurrected life. And so we are able to then suffer for the glory of Christ in imitation of his suffering. Do we understand suffering for Christ is an imitation of Christ? And and Peter in 1 Peter 4 tells us suffering for the sake of stupidity, suffering for the sake of sin is, is not suffering for Christ. In living out our lives in imitation of Christ as we then suffer because of our imitation, suffering in Christ so how is your suffering are you suffering is your life being lived in the public sphere to the point that you have something that you're going to suffer for because of how you're living is your life worthy of suffering for Christ because of how it's being lived turn back in Mark chapter 9 Notice the disciples do not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. The disciples aren't the quickest bunch of guys, but they're also not the slowest either. They probably remember a very hard rebuke. Mark eight thirty three. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. I don't understand this, 
But I'm not going to be the one to ask this time around. I remember how that went. It didn't go well. So rather, they are quiet and they are afraid to ask. Do you have faith in the risen Christ? I didn't ask, do you believe in God? I didn't ask, do you believe that you're a sinner? But do you have faith that Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, became the perfect man who died an unjust death to pay for our injustice against the perfect Father and then rose three days after death to complete the work and root our hope by faith in Jesus Christ, the one who saves from sin and gives eternal life. Do you believe that? Have you responded to that truth by repenting of your sin and living by faith in the risen Christ who is your Savior and your Lord, the one who rules your life? If you're sitting here today and you've not responded to the risen Christ, the truth there, then I would simply do invite you after the service to talk to me, talk to someone to your left and right, ask them, what does that faith look like? What does that response look like? For those who have been saved by faith in the Son of God, we are called to imitate Christ as the perfect example of how we're to live for the glory of God. And that takes us to the second half of the passage in 33 through 37. Imitating Christ, this is the heading I've placed on it, imitating Christ is humbling. Imitating Christ is humbling. Let's look at the passage, 33 through 37. Notice that they're afraid to ask him about this hard saying, and on the trip, they're talking probably about it. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Notice that they were ashamed and they kept silent. Why did they do so? Because they were arguing in many ways like like little children. Who's the greatest? And perhaps the argument was between Peter, James, and John and the other nine. Hey, we just came off the Mount of Transfiguration. We've seen the, glorified, the pre-glorified Christ. We're the greatest. You guys haven't had that privilege. And perhaps the nine are then arguing back and saying, yeah, but yeah, but we were down in the valley. We were doing some, we've been doing some miracles as well. We've cast out demons like you did back in Mark 6. We've got equal share in the greatness of the kingdom to come. Perhaps their argument was more about who's going to have preeminence and who's going to have the greatest power, who's going to have the prestige with this political overthrow that they were hoping that Christ would bring over Rome. Yeah, when he, when he does the work and gets rid of those guys, I'm going to be the secretary of state. I'm going to be this. I'm going to be that. Oh, no, 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 I'm the greatest. And I think it's humorous that they're having this conversation thinking, he can't hear us. He doesn't know what we're talking about. 
you're a parent, you've heard your children in the other room talking and you walk in and they look at you. You've heard what they were saying. You knew what was going on. That's the way it was going on here. Notice, though, his, his, his method of how he deals with them. I think this is good application, not primary, but good secondary application for us, especially as parents. He teaches them. He's well aware of what's going on, and yet he teaches them. He, he's aware of their conversation, and he corrects them by teaching. Yes, there is a time for the hard rebuke, as he did back over in chapter 8. But there's also the time for the question and the gentle time to teach. And that's what he does here. He sits them down, and he sits them down in the house. We're not sure whose house this is. It might have been Peter's. Maybe it was Christ. But he sits them down, and he teaches them. He asks them a good question. It's a framed question. He knows what the answer is going to be, which is nothing, because he, he caught them. And he gives them a hard saying, the first of two hard sayings in this passage. Verse 35 is the first hard saying, Verse 37 is the second hard saying. Let's look at number one. Verse 35, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. If anyone would be first, if anyone would be the greatest, he must be last. He must be the humblest of all and serve all. For us today, we can understand that passage in the light of the rest of the New Testament. For them, it was a hard saying. What does that mean? And yet they eventually got it. Paul especially. Let's go over to Philippians 2, verse 1. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. It helps us here. Let me just read this. And once you get there, pick up where I'm reading. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Be the last, be the servant. Verse four, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These two hard sayings in verse 35 and verse 37 of Mark 9 are just ways Christ is using to explain the harder saying, which is in 31, that they don't understand that the Son of Man will be killed. In essence, he's saying that the death of Christ in verse 31 is the greatest example of service. It's the greatest example of humility. The Son of Man sent to die at the hands of men in order that the hands of men might be lifted in worship, in worshipful service back to God. Isn't that the greatest example of humility? That the Son of Man would be sent to the sons of men 
to die at the hands of men in order that our hands could be then used to worship God in service. By application then, that points continually for us the fact that the greatest, the greatest became the least. The greatest is Christ. The greatest then, by implication for us, that the greatest life one can live is when one lives missionally to promote his greatness. I just simply, by believing in Christ, join in his greatness. And will we join in that service? Will we humble ourselves? Will we be last and serve? This second harder saying in verse 37 is is simply a fuller explanation of that service. And notice, it comes with a promise. Verse 36 and 37. He takes a child. He puts them in the midst of them. And he takes this child in his arms and he says then to the disciples, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. A child at that point, and in some ways even now, was looked down in ancient societies. To serve a child was to serve the unpopular. To serve a child was to serve the weak. To serve a child was to serve the unlovely, the unimportant. The child, serving a child is not like serving a king. The king can elevate your status. The child has no capability of doing so. When we imitate Christ in humble service to others, we serve those who are like us when Christ served us with salvation. Dead in our trespasses and sins, we were unlovely. We were unimportant. We were unpopular. Maybe in the eyes of men, not so, but in the only one that counts in the eyes of God, we were. Christ served us by his death, burial, and resurrection. Therefore, we serve those that were like us at one point. Who in Fredericksburg, who in your neighborhood is the unwanted, the unpopular, the the unlovely? How do you view them? The unlovely, the undesirable, the unwanted, that's one of the paradoxical truths of the Christian faith. That the world around us says, that person's gross, that person's yucky, Get away from that person or get that person away from me. And yet God says, through Christ, you're mine. By his gift of faith, he he leads then to eternal life based in the hope of the perfect work of Jesus Christ for for us on the cross. And we go from unlovely to lovely in the eyes of God. We go from rejected in our sin to accepted because Christ never sinned. We go from unwanted to now having a job in the kingdom of heaven that carries weighty responsibility. We imitate Christ by serving those. So, Is your life right now being driven by status as the disciples was? Who's the greatest? Or is it being driven by servitude? Small business owners, how do you view your employees, your vendors? Are they merely stepping stones to build your status, your kingdom? 
mothers, fathers? How do we view our children? Are they, are they simply status symbols? I think motherhood is probably one of the greatest examples of humble servitude. And mothers, this morning, I would encourage you, do not grow weary in that humble service to your family. Note the special grace that comes with imitating Christ in your family. And you can note that by, by just listening to people's testimony. The greatest testimony oftentimes people have of, of influence in their life were by teachers and their mother or their father, their parents. Much of the world around us today is measured by status, by Facebook, social media, networking, fashion, cars, the size of the house, the bank account, whatever it might be. But imagine if a world would be like, what a world would be like if things were measured not by status, but by service. Instead of reporting to the government how much money you made, you reported how many you people how many people you served and in what manner. Instead of indicating to the world how large of a home you have in square feet, your home was listed for sale by how many people could be housed and served on any given day. Now the harsh reality is that if that was the world around us, that could never happen. Because the sinfulness of man's heart would then turn the measure of service into a measure of status. Still dealing with the sinfulness of man's heart. We can change the way we report our income to changing it to report our service, but we're still going to then elevate that as the status of what makes me look good. Therefore, one's motivation for service cannot come from service it must come from something greater, namely the motivation for our service is when we see the service of Christ for us on the cross. That's why we want to be a gospel-centered church, a Christ-centered church. Because therefore our motivation for serving others does not come out of what they think or where my status will look like, how many followers I'll get or whether or not I'll be popular and viral. But because Christ has served me, therefore I would serve them. Are we about exalting our kingdom or serving the heavenly kingdom? Notice the the theme of this passage that I gave at the beginning. Imitating Christ in humble service is rewarded by closer fellowship with the Father. And I ask the question, how does one grow in closer relationship with the Father? And it's through imitating Christ in humble service. So how is, our, how is our service these days? How great then is your desire for closer fellowship with the Father? And in Christ we have a restored, immovable relationship with God, a relationship that can grow, but a relationship that can grow in intimacy. And a relationship that will never go away, but certainly one that can grow in closer intimacy and will even eternally grow in intimacy. Intimacy that comes only through seeking and serving out of love for God. You want to grow a relationship closer with someone around you? You don't just stare at them from afar. You engage with them. You do things with them. You serve them. You show the love of Christ to them. It's the same way with God. Will we serve one another in discipleship? Is there, is there another person in the church that 
that you know might benefit from your meeting with them or her for the, for the work of doing them good spiritually, discipling them? Or are you putting that off, thinking, but that person over there is a little easier? Charles Spurgeon said, when fellowship is the sweetest, your desire is the strongest that others may have fellowship with you. And when truly your fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, you earnestly wish that the whole Christian brotherhood may share the blessing with you. How does one gain closer with fellowship with God? By imitating in com- Christ in humble service to others, flowing out of, as a result of, a transformed heart by God. It takes humility, though. August 1936, Berlin, Germany. This was known as the Hitler Games. Nazi Germany was not quite a world power, but it was setting the stage well. In August 1936, Hitler's desire was to use the Olympic Games as a platform, as a megaphone for proclaiming his his thoughts his desires. And one of those was to show the power of the Aryan race. And so he had poured in great resources into that Olympics, taking anyone who was training for the Olympics, removing them from their job, supporting them, giving them the best food coaching that one could possibly have in order for Germany to, if possible, sweep the medals. And there that day was the fifth day of the rowing championships. Germany had taken the previous five races. They had won convincingly, and here the U.S. got into their boat. With Hitler looking on, eight boys from Washington, University of Washington, who were everything in opposition to those that were represented in Germany. They were poor, they were hardworking, they were underfed, they were sick, but they were united in humility. They went on to win and win convincingly. And it has been said that every one of the eight boys in the U.S. 1936 rowing boat had a measure of humility. That humility was the gateway by which they were able to approach one another in order to build the bonds of trust that made them into the great crew they became. This is the way it is for the church. Will we humble ourselves enough to unite and be strengthened by one another because of the humility of Christ for us that we might serve one another and serve others for the glory of God the Father. Imitating Christ in humble service is rewarded by closer fellowship with the Father. So may we look more fully this week to Christ and his service to us through his death, burial, and resurrection as motivation for our service to others. And the scripture here promises that that the fellowship with the Father will grow even sweeter, will grow even closer. You want to know God more? Imitate Christ in humility for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, this second passion proclamation is a hard one for for us to understand. 
It's against everything around us that we would deny ourselves, take up our cross in humility and follow Christ. But it's a grand and glorious calling. In fact, Father, your word is argued with us this morning that is the, the greatest calling. The calling that brings the most glory and strength. The calling that brings the most joy and even happiness. The calling that brings the most suffering. And yet the greatest joy that one can have in this life, even in the face of that great suffering, is in serving you, our Heavenly Father, in imitation of Christ. Father, we want to be that as a people. We want to be that as a family. We want to be that as a church. We want to be that as boys and girls, mothers and fathers, men and women. So we lean upon you for grace to do so. We lean upon you to open our eyes to the truth of the wonder and the beauty of Christ for us, now risen and reigning. Father, may we not look for closer fellowship with you outside of that humble imitation. May we not look for closer fellowship by whatever else someone might conjure up. We see in Scripture, Father, that closer fellowship comes through the work of Christ and the imitation of Christ. We're grateful, Father, that you have given us that relationship that can never change, fade, or go away. But it can grow. And we look forward to growth for eternity in that relationship and even growth this week as we seek you because of your love for us. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.